Father, as we uh, draw into your presence now, we do so mindful of the fact that apart from the saving work of Christ, there would be no new and living way open for us into the presence of God. It is only by the blood shed by our Savior, only by his body given on the cross, that we have the right to come into your presence, that we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we should be mindful of our total dependence on Christ, that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches, and apart from him, we can do nothing. And I'm acutely aware of that now as I stand up before these dear brothers and sisters to preach the word of God. Apart from you, apart from your, your assistance and your empowerment, I can do nothing of use. And this time will have been wasted. But Lord, I don't believe that that's what's going to happen. Instead, as Paul was confident that if he came to Rome, he would come in the full measure of the assurance of God's grace and, and in his own faith and that God would use his spiritual gifts to bless the Roman church and that their gifts would be a blessing to him as well. And so I do expect that, Lord, that we will bless one another by spiritual gifts and by uh, sharing of the word of God. I pray that you would give me uh, special grace by the Spirit to, uh, to illuminate the scriptures as Steve prayed from Psalm 119, verse 18, that, we should open our, that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your word. I know that numbers of the, of the people here have studied Philippians and have committed some of it to memory, and I just pray that all of that study would just uh, come alive and, and be illuminated in their minds and also in mine as we study this incredible book together. More than anything, Lord, I pray for Calvary Baptist, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that you would allow these brothers and sisters to shine brightly in this context in St. John's in Newfoundland, that you would strengthen each one of them uh, to be light shining in dark place. Oh, Lord, we know that Newfoundland is your, it's your, it's part of your earth, it's part of the world that you have created and the people here are created in your image and many of them walk in darkness, they don't know you. They are dead in their transgressions and sins. And you have started this church and sustained it and you have strengthened it over the years that it might be a light shining in a dark place. So while I do pray that each of us that are here would be on this re retreat renewed and strengthened and invigorated, more than anything I pray that as a result of our study today the church would be unleashed in power through the Holy Spirit to be witnesses and be, and be able to share the word of God to people who need it so desperately here in St. John's and, and that they would have an impact that will last for eternity. So that's really what I pray for concerning this retreat. So use your word and use me, O oh Lord, in total reliance on your Holy Spirit that we might be strengthened by this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd like to ask that you turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. And we're going to be walking through this book. I'm not going to be able to go through every verse. I'm not going to be going uh, to go line by line like I would do uh, in my church. Uh, years ago, I preached through the book of Philippians, uh, but we have just a very, very short time together, and so I'm going to have to kind of pick and choose, but my pattern is expository preaching and, and just relying on God's word, and so that's what we're going to do. As I do so, I'm thinking about a sermon series I just finished in my church in the book of Revelation. 22 chapters I walked through, and uh, as John, in exile on the island of Patmos, was there, he had a vision of the resurrected and glorified Christ moving through the seven golden lampstands. And he's, uh, his eyes are like blazing fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. And the seven golden lampstands represent um, actual local churches that, uh, that John was familiar with that were there in Asia Minor, but the number seven being a number of perfection, uh, represent, I think, ultimately, Jesus' concern, his active concern for every local church in every geographical uh, location and throughout all of church history, and that he's actively ministering to every local church. 
And so I think for you, as you think about your church, you should be mindful of that, that Christ is, is very actively ministering to you and through you. And he knows very well in Revelation 2 and 3, he addresses each of the seven churches. He's very mindful. He, he begins each, each one with a statement, I know you effectively. I know you. I know where you are. I know your challenges. I know the open doors of opportunity I've set before you. I know your strengths. I know your weaknesses. I know everything about you. And so the Lord is ministering in your local church as he is ministering in ours. And Jeff and I have talked about this recently. I think it's also beneficial for you to realize how temporary every local church is. All local churches are temporary. There's going to come a time that there'll be only one church, the Bride of Christ, perfected, glorified. You read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. The New Jerusalem, the Bride of Christ, perfected. And there'll be people there from every tribe and language and people and nation. And they'll be there in glory and radiant splendor. And all local churches will be obsolete at that point. So every local church has a purpose. It's a means to an end. Whereby individuals who have crossed over from death to life can be built up in their faith can be a place where people who are elect and chosen but have not yet been redeemed can hear the gospel and they can cross over from death to life, but then they can grow in, in grace and the knowledge of Christ. And so our purpose together is every time you hear Steve, Brother Steve, uh, open the word of God, is that you would be strengthened in your own salvation. Now my, my feeling is that, uh, and I, I teach this all the time at my church, not one of us is done being saved. Salvation's a process. And this book itself that we're going to study, that we, that we look at, says that you're supposed to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 that he should devote himself to his spiritual gift of the public ministry of the word, preaching and teaching. And he should develop and, and grow in his gift. He should be a better preacher 10 years down the line than he is now. He should know the word of God better 10 years later than he does now. And everyone around you, Timothy, should see your progress. And they should hear flowing from you the ministry of the word of God. For in so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's an incredible statement, isn't it? You say, well, isn't Timothy done? Isn't he saved? Well, he's, he's justified. He's been redeemed. His sins have been forgiven, but he's not done being saved. And he's in danger. We're all in danger while we live. From the world, the flesh, and the devil, our souls are under constant assault from these enemies. And so we need each other, and we need an ongoing ministry of the Word. So every time I get up in front of the, the church in Durham, I'm mindful of the fact that none of the people that are, are hearing me are done being saved. I'm not done being saved, and we're in danger. And our souls are under constant assault, and I know you feel it. The world is a dangerous place for our faith. And so we need a, a, a feeding of the Word of God. You need your faith strengthened. Remember how, how Jesus, the night before he died said to Simon Peter, who was about to go through the worst night of his life, and he didn't, he didn't know it at all. He didn't know what was about to hit him. But he was going to deny even knowing Jesus, deny him three times before the rooster crowed. You remember? And Jesus in Luke 22 said, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you, plural, all of you, like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Simon, specifically, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, and strengthen your brothers. Isn't that comforting? Think about that. It's comforting. That Jesus is the right hand of God and is interceding for all of you that your faith will not fail. And if you're one of God's redeemed, it won't. Your faith will not fail. But it's a dynamic process. If he were to withdraw from you, your faith would most certainly fail. Quickly. 
And if you don't believe that, you don't understand the danger you're in, you're overestimating yourself and underestimating your enemies, and you're underestimating Jesus' ongoing priestly ministry to your souls. So I pray that none of you would do that. You would understand you need Jesus praying for you, and you are well prayed for. It's good to get brothers and sisters to pray for you. I think we should solicit prayers. Paul does it. But isn't it good to know that both the Son and the Spirit are interceding for you to the end that your faith won't fail? And it's good to know that. Now, part of the means to that end is an ongoing ministry of the Word of God. He enables your faith not to fail by feeding it. Faith comes by hearing, and faith is fed by hearing the Word of God. So our time together, my, my only task is to feed you the Word of God so that your faith will be strengthened. Not only that it will not fail, but that it will flourish and that you'll grow. And so what we're going to do is look at Philippians. I could have chosen any one of a number of books of Scripture. But as we were having some discussions, thinking about what would be beneficial, this is what came to me. And uh, so I want to begin by reading all, the whole chapter, Philippians chapter 1. I will not be walking carefully through it. I would love to. I would love to. But we have limited time. And so then I'll go into uh, just an organization of the presentation of Philippians 1. But uh, look with me at Philippians chapter 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. For whether I'm in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, 
and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. And I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So let's stop there. As I read through that whole section, I want to call your attention to verse 20. I believe that this is the main point of the whole first chapter, probably of Paul's life. And he has other places he articulates it, but uh, Paul's central desire in everything of his life is that God would be magnified or glorified through him. So I want you, you to zero in right, right away on verse 20 as the main point. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. So I want you to zero in on that word exalted or magnified, that God would be magnified in my body no matter what I go through. And that's an incredible goal that I would set before you. Say the same should be your heart desire. That no matter what happens to you, even if you die, that Christ would be magnified. The Greek word uh, literally means to make great or enlarge or make bigger. Like a, a magnifying glass, something like that, a magnification. Uh, it's used in scripture of a child growing up, over a king enlarging his territory, making it larger through conquest. It's used of a man's fame and reputation spreading wide so that he becomes more and more well-known or famous. Uh, it's used of the size of someone's opportunities getting larger, magnified or exalted, something like that. So Paul's deepest desire is that Christ would be exalted or enlarged. Now, we understand the situation. He's in chains for the gospel. He's in prison for the gospel. He's writing from prison. He's going through an extreme trial. And he's writing to them about that trial. He begins the letter by expressing tremendous affection for them, a desire that they would continue to grow in their walk with Christ. He talks about their prayer for, him, uh, uh, for them in, in verses 9 through 11. I would commend those three verses. If you want to know what to pray for for each other, go to Paul's epistles. And verses 9 through 11 are great things to pray for other Christian brothers and sisters. But having done that, then he gets to the, the, the point of the fact that he's in chains, he's in prison. 
And he wants to write to them about that. And he wants to help them not to be afraid about that. He wants to, he's not just putting a good spin on it here. He says, actually, God, through his sovereignty, has orchestrated this for his own glory, actually, and for the spread of the gospel. And he's explaining that. But the purpose of all of this is, it says, in my life, through my body, my time on earth, that Christ would be magnified, that he would be exalted. So it's an interesting concept, isn't it? You see it also in uh, Psalm 34, verse 3. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. So when we come together for corporate worship, that'd be a good thing for us to do. Like we're all coming together, say, oh, magnify the Lord with me. What does that mean? Magnify the Lord. I mean, it's a, it's a, a, it, could be, it should be, to some degree, a troubling idea. How can you make an infinite God bigger? How, how can you make an infinite God bigger? How do you magnify an infinite God? Do you remember when Solomon was dedicating the temple? And he was... Uh, caught up in the moment thinking about this great temple that he had built covered with gold. And I, think, I wonder if the Holy Spirit in the midst of his prayer humbled him or he was just in a balanced way saying this is a great and majestic temple but let's be honest about what I've just built. This gold box. This gold container. He says in 1 Kings 8.27 But will God really dwell on earth? Heaven, even the highest Heavens can't contain you. How much less this house I have built. There's no container for God. He's infinite. Jeremiah 23, 24 says, God says this. Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Think about that. The infinitude of the cosmos. It's just absolutely mind-boggling and staggering just how big outer space is. And God says, I fill it. I mean, there's no container for God. So how can sinful human beings make an infinite God bigger? Well, honestly, you can't. The idea is more, uh, like we say, anthropological, focused on the human perspective. He can be bigger in your estimation. You are all of you, including me, I also, are underestimating Christ. Underestimating God. He's too small in our estimation. It says in Isaiah 6, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So the idea is he's too small to us. Why is that? Why is God too small to us? Well, it's because we're so distant from him. Our sins have separated us from him, so we underestimate him. Think, for example, about the planet Jupiter. Jupiter is approximately 11 times larger than the Earth. It's an immense planet. It's a huge ball of gas, 89,000 miles in diameter. It's big enough to hold all the other planets in the solar system within itself. And yet, from the earth, it appears to us as a small dot of light. 
Why? Because we're so far away from it, 195 million miles away from Jupiter. However, in January of 1610, Galileo pointed his newly invented telescope at Jupiter, and he could see four moons orbiting this massive planet. He might have seen the red spot on Jupiter's surface, which is twice as large as the Earth, but it's completely invisible to the naked eye, of course. So the telescope magnified Jupiter, but didn't do a thing to Jupiter. It didn't change Jupiter at all. It just made it bigger to him. And so the idea is to ourselves and to everyone around us, Christ is too small. And so Paul's desires that his imprisonment would greatly exalt or magnify Christ, whether by his life or by his death. Sin makes us relationally distant from God. And the idea is, oh Lord, I want to draw closer and closer to you. I want you to appear more and more more majestic, more and more exalted than you are to me. So he wanted his life to be somewhat like a telescope to make it appear bigger. In the same way, Christ's kingdom is too small. It's not big enough. Uh, There are more people that need to be brought into the kingdom. So we want to see uh, Christ's kingdom exalted, magnified. We prayed in the Lord's Prayer. You know, our Father in heaven, may your name be hallowed or held in honor and may your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The same thing also with the evangelism and missions. In the end, Revelation 7, 9 says there's going to be a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Hundreds and hundreds of millions of people redeemed. Think about the biggest crowd you've ever seen or the biggest photograph a photograph of the biggest crowd you've ever seen. Like you see some of these uh, Hindu assemblies around some of these holy rivers and those are like 20, 30, 40,000 people gathered around, and there's, you can't almost see their bodies. Their heads are all packed together. It's just an incredible throng. That's just tens and tens of thousands. What then would hundreds and hundreds of millions look like? It's going to be staggering. It's going to be unbelievable. We have to see it by faith. Because we can hardly imagine how there could be a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And so the desire, Paul's desire, is that Christ's kingdom would get larger and larger, be magnified and exalted through his body, whether by life or by death. And so he was presenting his body, in verse 20, as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. He wanted God to use his body as a temple of service to Christ. And so he presented his body every day as a living sacrifice. He talks about in Romans And he wanted Christ to use his body, even use it up. But he knew that in his situation, in chains for the gospel, he needed uh, boldness and he needed courage. He wanted sufficient courage so that Christ would be exalted. He wanted to live well and, if necessary, die well. And that took a supernatural courage from God, boldness and joy. His big concern was that he would, in some way, be ashamed of Christ and of his gospel. That he would shrink back because he was threatened with his life. That he would shrink back from fully proclaiming Christ. So he wanted boldness, plainness of speech. So he would tell the whole truth and not shrink back from any aspect of the gospel. And in the middle of that, he yearned for joy. His desire is that he would have great boldness and he would have joy. There would be a deep, rich, emotional delight in Christ and in his kingdom through all of this. 
And Paul says in verse 20, he's confident of it. He actually is eagerly expectant and filled with hope. He's not consumed with fear that he'll fail and be ashamed of the gospel. Instead, he is confident that God will support him right to the end. So, summary, verse 20. The one central desire of Paul's life was that Christ would be exalted, magnified, made greater, that his name would be held in esteem, his kingdom would grow and grow ever larger and larger through his body, whether by life or by death. That was his desire. So let me just stop and just say, what about you? Let me just apply it to each one of you. Is that your desire? As you look at verse 20, maybe you have not seen verse 20 in this light before, to see Philippians 1.20 and say, is that my desire that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death? Now you know, just from listening to me, you know that it should be that you would be able to say something like that, that you would yearn that it would be true of you, But if you sense that it's not, then ask him to do a great work in you. This is the reason the Holy Spirit is given, because we're so weak. And so the Holy Spirit takes verses like this and illuminates them to you. Like Steve was saying in Psalm 119, verse 18, that we would see new things in God's word. It's like, oh God, do this in my life. Please, I want to live and die even if need be, that you would be magnified and glorified. All right, so that's his point. That's his reason why. But he's got two subordinate means to that end. The the central goal is that Christ would be glorified, exalted, magnified. How is that going to happen? Well, the two subordinate means are what I call the two infinite journeys. And and when I wrote An Infinite Journey, and I was here a number of years ago and preached some of these things, and now it's a book. So it's there. You can read read it, and it's been developed. It's it was longer than that. I just want you to know, I've, I've, somebody on Amazon said it feels like an infinite journey as you're reading it. That was, I thought it was unkind, um, but, you know, it felt like an even more infinite journey while I was writing it. Um, it was at one point 30 or 40 percent longer uh, than that. But the, the idea of an infinite journey uh, really comes from Philippians chapter 1. And what I want you to see is that God has, has ordained his own glory as the central motive For every Christian, once we have been redeemed, once we have come to faith in Christ, your central motive should be the glory of God in your life. Really, Philippians 1.20 is just another way of saying that. That Christ will be exalted in you. That should be your central, central desire. How? How? I would commend that making progress in the two infinite journeys is how it should happen. The internal journey of holiness and the external journey of gospel advance through evangelism and missions these two things are the way by which we glorify God the rest of our lives and not one or the other you're not going to say well of the two I think I'm going to pick this one you can't do that you have have to hold them together that as you are faithful in sharing the gospel you'll be growing in holiness as you're growing in holiness and in conforming to Christ you're going to be more and more evangelistically zealous or it isn't a real growth in Christ likeness these things go together For every local church, that should be the desire. So where do we see these infinite journeys, these two journeys? Well, the first one I want to show you is in verse 12. He's talking about his own imprisonment. He's in chains for Christ. He said, now I want you to know, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to, what does it say, advance the gospel. All right, so... My, my being in chains has not in any way hindered the spread of the gospel. It's actually advanced the gospel. So that, that word, the advance of the gospel, that's the, the spreading of the word. He, and then explains why. He says, you know, because of my chains, 
people who are not yet in prison have lost their fear of being imprisoned. They actually see me thriving here, and they're not afraid anymore. They've lost their fear. And other people are preaching the gospel just to get me in trouble, and that's fine because they're preaching Christ and him crucified, if from terrible motives. So that's not okay, but the message is okay, and so that's okay. It says, what does it matter? Christ is being preached, and I'm glad. Not only that, but some of these guards that are chained to me, guess what they're doing while they're chained to me? They're listening to the gospel. And there's actually been some fruit. There's some people from Caesar's household who've come to faith in Christ. So I'm, I'm sharing the gospel with them. And God is selecting the guards that come sit next to me. I look on every, every guard that gets chained to me as a divine appointment for me to share the gospel. So in the end, honestly, the gospel continues to spread. So the advance of the gospel. You see it in verse 12, the word advance. Now look again at verse 25. Paul is wrestling with whether he's going to live or die. He doesn't know whether he's going to live or die. He knows what he'd prefer, and then he knows what he'd like to prefer even more, and so he's going back and forth. He has torn desires, which is an incredible thing, and we'll get to that in a minute, that he would actually have that kind of a, a torn, like, I don't know whether I'd rather live or die. It's incredible. We'll get to that. But as he spins it around and comes out, he says, you know, in the end, I think I'm going to keep on living. It's not up to me, but I think that God's going to let me live He's going to let me continue so that I'll have fruitful ministry. In verse 25, he says, I believe I will continue with all of you for what? Your progress and joy in the faith. It's the same Greek word. The Greek word is prokope. It means progress. Verse 12, verse 25. These are the two journeys. It's right there. A, a, a progress is it's like a journey. You, you put one foot in front of another. There's alpha and the omega. There's the first and the last, the beginning and the end. There's progress to be made. So... I will continue with all of you for your progress in the faith. That's sanctification. That's what that is. It's holiness. They're already believers. But he wants to help them be more mature. He wants to help them grow. So Paul cares for nothing in his life except these two things. So you can think of it this way. Progress of the gospel and progress in the gospel. Progress of the gospel, verse 12, that's evangelism and missions. Progress in the gospel is sanctification and growth. And for me, I'm a, I'm a trustee of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptists. It's a, a very uh, large denominational sending agency. One of my, my deepest desires is that the missionaries would go out understanding the fullness of the Great Commission that they would not truncate it to such slogans as going to reach as many people, right, or win as many people. That's not enough, and that's not what the Great Commission says. They are to make disciples. They are to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What's the third part? Teach them to obey. I prefer that to observe. Observe is an old way of saying obey. But like we observe a holiday or something like that. It's like, yeah, oh yeah, it's the 4th of July in America. Or it's the 1st of July here in Newfoundland. I think is your, your day of independence or, or something like that. You observe it. No, well, you need to do better than that, friends. You need to obey everything. Everything Christ has commanded. It's a comprehensive obedience. Now, none of us is going to attain it in this world, but that's the goal. So missionaries are sent to do that. That's the fullness of the Great Commission. So progress of the gospel plus progress in the gospel, that's what we're talking about. Those are the two journeys. Now, Paul cares nothing for his life except for these two things. 
He discusses his own suffering in detail in Philippians 1, but the full, whole focus here is how he thinks about it for the glory of, of Christ. There's not a hint of pity or selfishness here, just a desire to advance the gospel around the world and to advance the Philippian Christians in their faith. Progress, that's what Paul wants. Progress for the Philippians and progress through the Philippians to other people. That's the desire. And you see it a lot. Like look at verse 6, and I think Steve began by reading that. I love that. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's probably one of the most famous progress verses that there are. Your, your salvation uh, is going to be pressed on by the sovereign God who began it until it's complete. But it's not complete yet. Uh, or again, verse 9, 11, 9 through 11. This is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Abound, increase, your love may increase. And your knowledge may increase and your insight may increase so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless. That's holiness language until the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That you might live a really radiant, glorious, fruitful life. That's his prayer for them. But again, that's progress. Look, look at the next chapter, Philippians 2. Verse 12 and 13, which God willing we'll get to a little bit uh, next time. But it says, therefore, dear friends, as you always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. What? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. That's sanctification language. Keep growing in your salvation. Keep working it out. Or chapter 3, hugely. Chapter 3, Paul says, forgetting what lies behind straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me everywhere in Christ Jesus. And what is that prize? Perfection. Absolute perfection in Christ. That's the goal. I've not attained it yet. I've not gotten that yet, but that is my daily goal. Every day I press on. There's an aspect of the Christian life that's pressing, a pressing on. That's sanctification language. He talks about this a lot. So progress of the gospel, progress in the gospel. That's what we're talking about here. And that's his whole philosophy of suffering in Philippians. It has one purpose at the advance of the gospel. That what has happened to me, my suffering, has uh, advanced the gospel. So God's chosen strategy in these two journeys, how will you make progress? And the only way that you can make progress in either of these two journeys is by suffering. Suffering is essential to progress in holiness, and suffering is essential to progress in evangelism and missions. So effectively, Paul could have said, Lord, I want your kingdom to advance. I want you to use my body, my life, to advance the kingdom. What do you want me to do? He would say, I want you to preach the gospel boldly in every place, build up the church, and then I want you to be incarcerated. I want you to be thrown in prison. And for a long time, for many years, I'm going to put you in jail. I'm going to put your joyful, bold Christian faith on display. I'm going to put you up on a pedestal of suffering so that everyone can see how different Christianity is from the world. That's my strategy. Now, I don't know what kind of prison Paul wrote from. There are different levels of suffering in Roman jails and first century jails. Some, In some cases, it seemed like he was under a little more than house arrest. Like at the end of the book of Acts, people are coming and going. He's eating fine, just can't leave the house. But there in the Philippian jail, it was far worse than that. It was total darkness, and he was in stocks. 
and uh, he had been beaten, and it was horrible. So there's a lot of suffering, and Paul went through it, and I'll talk more about it in a later talk. But Paul, in verse 17 of chapter 2, says, I'm being poured out like a drink offering. So that was the level of suffering. So God's strategy for the advance of the gospel among the Gentiles was that he would pour Paul out like a drink offering. He would cause him to suffer. And this is the exact strategy that Jesus has for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. This is what he has given all of us that we would understand this is how the gospel is going to spread to the ends of the earth. In John 12, 24, he said, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains by itself a single seed. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And then he said a few verses later, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. And then Jesus said, my father will honor the one who serves me. That's incredible. How would you like to be honored by almighty God in heaven? Then hate your life, lose your life, die like a kernel of wheat, and see the fruit that comes from it. That's the strategy that God was using through the Apostle Paul. And it's the very thing he's commending to the Philippian church. And so he gave them an example. It wasn't just a theory. It was actually happening. He really had been imprisoned. He was uh, going through it. And every day he continued to proclaim the gospel boldly, even in prison. The very thing that got him arrested to begin with, he continued to do. He kept on preaching and he kept on shining his light. And as a result... The gospel kept spreading. I'm mindful of uh, one of my great heroes in church history, John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. And he preached in England in a time when you weren't allowed to preach without a license. It wasn't a time of extreme persecution, but it was not a time of religious freedom. And so he was in a prison from which he would be released any time he chose if he would swear before God that he would never preach again. And this he could not do. He would not make that false promise. He felt called to preach. Now his jailer from time to time let him slip away and preach out in the woods as long as he was back by nightfall. And so he'd let him do that from time to time. But let's not underestimate the years that he spent there. And he said that my separation from my wife and my children has been like the plucking of the flesh from my bones. It was hard for him, but he could not say no to his calling to preach. And he used the time well by writing a little book called Pilgrim's Progress. But he refused to give up that preaching. And so it was with Paul. Imprisonment and suffering were not just theoretical. They were real in his life. But his attitude is on display, joy and suffering. This, this epistle is about joy. It's probably the most famous aspect about Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. He mentions joy again and again. And so he's joyful, he's rejoicing and trusting. But his greatest pressing need was protection of his joy and boldness. He was concerned that he would not give up that boldness. So he yearned for prayer for them. And so he said, my deepest desire, verse 20, is that Christ would be exalted in my body, whether by life or, or by death. But then look at verses 21 through 26. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So what's he saying there? He's saying, I don't know whether they're going to execute me or not. I don't know whether they're going to kill me. They did that kind of thing. And so I might actually die. And I have no control over it. This rumination that I'm doing here is not going to change anything. It's not going to change the will of God, and it's not going to change the will of my captors. But if you're asking me my opinion, all right, he says, I want you to understand how I think about my life and my death. I believe Philippians 1.21 is the healthiest way anybody can ever think about life and death. There is no better way to think about life and death than Philippians 1.21. For me, Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I yearn to keep on living. And I yearn even more to die. Now that's not a suicidal person. That person yearns to keep living. He wants to keep on living. Why? Because his life is so comfortable and, and filled with luxuries and pleasures? Not at all. It's because his life is filled with fruitful ministry. So Paul, if you could right now depart and be with Christ, or if you could continue and pour into the Philippians and help them grow, which of the two would you choose? Do you not see at that moment how Christ-like he's become? For myself, I'd rather be in heaven. But like Jesus, and we'll talk about it next, next time, Philippians 2, left heaven and came to earth, I want to stay here as long as I can. I want to stay here and I want to minister with all of you. But for myself, I yearn to be. I yearn to be in heaven. Now, if you think about it, if you really look carefully at the verse, verse 21, it could become shocking to you. By the way, this is the benefit of scripture memorization. It's like, wow, there's more there than I thought. Mm -hmm. A lot more. And as you memorize, you just keep meditating. All right, why, why do I find Philippians 1.21 so surprising? Well, let me rephrase it just a little bit, and you'll know why then. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is something better. Whoa, wait a minute. For me, to live is Christ, and, and to die is... Something even better? Better than Christ. Effectively, that is what he's saying, as long as you understand it properly. It's like, wait a minute now. I'm not, how could Paul say there could any, be anything better than Christ? Well, what he's saying is, effectively, for me to live is to experience the closeness and intimacy of Christ in my life of suffering here on earth. And to die is to have even more of an experience of Christ, just with no suffering. That's what he's saying. So we could put it simply. For me, to live is Christ, and to die is more Christ. It's the only way you can understand Philippians 1.21 in a healthy way. And that's what he's saying. I am experiencing Christ here and, and, and now in my suffering and my service now, but it's going to be even better in heaven. That's what he's saying. To die is gain. Now, as I look at that, I think, you know, to be torn between the two and say I desire 
to depart and be with Christ and all that. Say, I yearn for that. Do you have that sense in your life? Do you have the sense of, of an expectancy of how wonderful heaven's going to be? That's what I'm preaching through Revelation 21, 22 for like 10 weeks I went through that. And I could have done more, but I mean just giving people a sense of what the new Jerusalem is going to be like, giving them a sense of what it's going to be like in the resurrection body, what it's going to be like to be in a body with no more death, mourning, crying, or pain, a body that is, is, is spiritual, a spiritual body, Paul calls it. It's incorruptible. It's powerful. It's glorious. All of these things in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 to 44, he describes the resurrection body. You're going to have a tireless, glorious resurrection body. And you'll be surrounded by other glorified Christians. And you're going to be in a radiantly glorious place. And yes, it's better by far than this. Amen? I mean, don't you yearn for that? But can we say the first half, too? For me to live is Christ. That's progress in sanctification. That you would say, that's what my life is all about. I yearn, as he says in chapter 3, verse 10, to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. And so Paul is actually saying, you know, I'm torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, but it's better for you that I remain. And I think any of you parents of, of young children, minor children, I think you could understand quickly how that is. I think any, any godly mom or dad you say, would you, if I could give you right now a trip to heaven, would you do it? I think you'd immediately start thinking about the people dependent on you and how hard it would be, how hard it would be for them. I will never forget a few years ago, my son, Calvin, woke, well, actually, he wasn't fully awake. He was screaming in the night. I'll never forget. It was 2, 3 in the morning, and, and my wife and I went in, and he, his, he wasn't awake yet, and his pillow was filled with tears. His face was soaking wet, but he wasn't awake, so we woke him up, and um, he saw me and grabbed me, grabbed hold of me so tightly. I said, you're having a nightmare. And uh, so we sat there for a little while. And then I asked him, what was it about? And he looked at me and he said, I dreamed that you died. And he was crying about that. And so we talked about it. And I couldn't promise him that I wouldn't die. How can I do that? But I said, I want you to remember this for the rest of your life. If I should die, I want you to remember three things. Number one, I will be infinitely, perfectly happy where I am. Number two, you're going to have a very hard time, but God will sustain you, and he will not leave you. And number three, we'll see each other again. So you keep those three things in mind. I don't know if you remember them, <laughs> but I remembered them. And I, I think about that. So you can imagine somebody not wanting to go and be with Christ yet because there's still people depending. And that's the way Paul felt about the Philippian church. It's better for you if I stay. And I want to stay to build you up in your faith. That's what he's talking about. But he says, for myself, you know, I won't regret leaving. Not at all. I think about Adoniram Judson, the uh, missionary to Burma. And he went through uh, suffering that is almost indescribable. Nobody reaches up to the level of the Apostle Paul. Not counting Jesus, of course. We give him first place in everything. But other than Jesus, I don't know anybody that suffered like the Apostle Paul. You read about the, his list of suffering in 2 Corinthians 12. The list is overwhelming. Uh, his sufferings were, were overpowering. Chapter 11 actually lists them out. Um, and, you know, five times beaten with 30 lashes minus, or 40 lashes minus one. Three times beaten with rods. That's eight beatings. Shipwrecked, stoned to death, all these terrible things. Terrible sufferings. 
But Adoniram Judson had some, some very vicious suffering as well. Buried two children and two wives. Uh, was tortured in prison. Um, as he was almost near his own death, he said this. He said, I'm not tired of this world, and I'm not tired of my work. But when he calls me, I shall be like a schoolboy on the final day of school. <laughs> Isn't that great? That's his version of for me to live as Christ and die as gain. And so he yearns to keep on pressing on and being filled with joy and being delighted so that through their prayers he might be bold in his faith and continue to grow. Now why does he go into all of these details? I want to apply it to, to, to them and then to us. Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 27 through 30. <clears throat> Whatever happens with my imprisonment, whether they execute me or I you know, keep on going in prison or they set me free, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Amen? Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. You carry yourselves in a, in a holy manner. Then... Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit. We'll get to that next time. Contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Now listen to this. Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. Showing no fear at all. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed and that you will be saved. When you die fearlessly, they will wonder what you have that they don't have. This happened with the Romans watching the Christians die in the Colosseum. How are they so courageous and we're all afraid to die? And then look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but to suffer for him. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now here I still have. In other words, you Philippians are going through it. That's his purpose. It's not so that they think well of him, somewhat so that they will pray for him, but the real deal is they're going through it too. He left them in the hotbed of persecution of Philippi, where he and Silas had been arrested. That was their hometown. Now let me just apply it to you. In Newfoundland, you are surrounded by unbelief. As Jeff said, my home area, and maybe Steve said it too, my home area, Boston, is is, uh, well, it's had better days in the gospel, let me tell you that, all right? When George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, when the first great awakening was going through, there was probably no place on planet Earth that shined more gloriously for the gospel than Boston, Massachusetts. It, it was unbelievable. Tens of thousands had turned to Christ. It was an, a revival uh, unlike any, really, in church history. Whitfield said, and, or Edwards, I'm not sure, I think it was Whitfield, that if there had been a, a brick of gold in the street, people would have walked by it to get to the prayer meeting, just left it on the street. It was just, that was the focus. It was incredible. Here's the thing. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, and it moves from here to there. So the glowing center of Christianity doesn't stay in one location very long. And so it's been centuries since that. You know, for me, I come from an Irish Catholic background. We didn't know or care anything about the First Great Awakening or George Whitfield or Jonathan Edwards. All right? So my Irish Catholic forebears came over on ships, and they landed there and uh, just 
Roman Catholicism spread everywhere, nominalism. Um, I wasn't nominal. I was an altar boy. I actually liked going to church when I was growing up, went through all the steps in the, in the Catholic church, and then I got to MIT, and I stopped going to church because I wasn't converted. I didn't know Christ. And so we're surrounded there, and you're surrounded here by lostness. And it's a hard kind to reach because they're familiar with the church. They're familiar with the things of the gospel. They might even think they're Christians, but they're not born again. And the hardest thing that it is for both you and for me is to get them lost before they get saved or found. They don't know that they're lost, and you have to use the law. And the law is hard work, the law work, but you've got to do it. And they're going <laughs> to they're gonna hate you for it. Martin Luther said you should always preach in such a way that when you get done, the people who hear you will either hate their sins or hate you. Well, Luther could handle that. <laughs> That's kind of how he was wired. But I'm like, I don't think we like to be hated. But to do workplace evangelism, to do, you know, street evangelism, to do neighborhood evangelism is hard work. But it is the work that God has committed to you. He has entrusted this city to you. Now, here's the thing. We send out missionaries with the IMB, and we send them to cities for the most part. And they go to Shanghai, and they go to Calcutta, and they go to Bangladesh, uh, different places. They go to all places all over the world, and they have a city. And the city's way too big for them to reach. But their area group leaders, their regional leaders, will ask them a version of this question. What is your strategy for your city? And missionaries, if they say, strategy? For, for my city. What do, you, what, what, what do you mean? Be like, you're not going to last long in the mission field with that reaction. What do you mean, what is my strategy? Your strategy for reaching the city for Christ. They would know right away how relevant that question is. What I find is people that aren't sent think the question's irrelevant for them. Well, why would it be? What's your strategy for reaching St. John's? What's my strategy for reaching Durham, North Carolina? We need to have one. And if you say, I have no idea, then I understand that. I, I, but just ask the Lord to give you, through the Holy Spirit, a strategy for reaching lost people. Let me tell you one more thing, and then I'll be done. Adoniram Judson, as he was moving uh, up to ask for religious freedom from the king, he was going to, uh, to ask permission for that, stopped along the way, and in one locality gave out 800 Burmese tracts in one community. One person was baptized. One person. What's amazing to me is the number 800. What kind of man gives out 800 tracts with that low level of response? Somebody who's just trying to be faithful. Somebody who's leaving the results to God. Now, by the time he was dead, there were over 210,000 baptized uh, Burmese Christians in Burma. Not directly related to him, but certainly related to his mission, ultimately. One out of 800, that number haunts me. Am I willing to see 799 failures for the one success? That's the thing. It's like keep, keep being faithful. Keep strategizing. There are a hundred more things I could say, but it's time to stop. So let's uh, close in prayer. Father, thank you for Philippians 1. Thank you for the Apostle Paul, for his zeal, for his power, for his energy, his glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us uh, to be faithful in our time. Uh, help Calvary Baptists. Uh, I thank you for the leadership here. I thank you for the, the faithful brothers and sisters that have come to this retreat. Oh, God, give them a passion for St. John's and for Newfoundland and for everything that they are doing here, that they would see lost people, even at a rate of one out of 800, see lost people cross over from death to life. Help me, help our church to be uh, faithful in Durham as well. In Jesus' name, amen.